Welcome to Flipping Real Estate Like the Pros. Here you'll learn everything you need to know to be a successful real estate entrepreneur and achieve the financial freedom you've always wanted. There's no BS, no fluff, there's zero guru talk, just real real estate flipping knowledge. Here's your host, Greg Simpson. Hey everybody, it's Greg Simpson here with Flipping Real Estate Like the Pros, and I have another awesome guest on my show today. Today's guest is Lee Kearney. Uh, Lee owns several real estate investment businesses in Florida, all that operate under the SPIN brand. He holds a degree in marketing and an MBA. Lee began his real estate career in 2004 and has bought and sold over 6,000 properties. Southeast Property Investment Network, SPIN, fixes and flips properties all across Florida. The SPIN flagship trading company has had sales volumes exceeding $100 million in 2015 and is expected to grow by 20% in 2016. SPIN Rentals has almost 300 units and is valued at over $25 million. SPIN Real Estate is the newest venture, which is leveraging the experience learned in the investment world to teach real estate agents how to do large volume sales and retain 100% of their commissions. Spin Real Estate has over 30 agents, is expected to exceed its first two years revenue combined in just its third year. Also in late 2013, Lee partnered with Ken to form Florida Agricultural Sciences and Technologies, FAST. Their vision is to be one of Florida's premier producers and products related to the medical marijuana industry. Lee, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're the real deal, huh? I like to think so. (laughs) (laughs) So Lee, fill in any gaps there in your personal life, you know. Uh, what you got going on, and what do you like to do for fun, my man? I like to uh, I like to snowboard, which is what I'm doing in two days from now. I'm heading out to Breckenridge, so I'll be out there for about five days um, on the slopes in Colorado. I like to cycle. That's one of my newest hobbies the last few months. I've been cycling a lot. like to run. like to go to the gym, stay in shape. Um, you know, being, being a dad now, I've got to stay in shape. Yeah, just like to go to the beach, like to dive, like to spearfish. Uh, anything that's outdoors and fun, I'm in. Beautiful. So where where exactly are you from, Lee? Where do you hail? I'm originally from Ireland. Uh, I moved over to Florida in 1996. Uh, spent about five years in the state. Moved back to Ireland for a year. Hated it. Moved to California for a year. Still miss Florida, so I moved back to Florida then in 2005. And I've been here ever since. Awesome. So, Lee, are are you a book guy like me? I'm not a huge book guy. That's probably one of my weaknesses. You know, a lot of people don't like to talk about their weaknesses. I've been really working on that right now, reading through the book at Tools of the Titans right now. So that that's an interesting book. It's kind of like bite-sized articles within a book. So I, I can do something like that because <laughs> every morning when I'm drinking my coffee, I just, you know, read one or two of those. And that's something I can do. But But for me, sitting down for hours and hours with a book, it's just mind-numbing to me. So I uh, I actually get a lot more out of meeting with smart people. I'll sit down. We'll have a conversation for an hour, and I'll retain a lot more out of that than I will from reading a book for, you know, 10 hours. So that's been my primary learning method. You know, everybody does something different, but uh, I'm just not a huge reader. It's just never been a strong suit, and I think it's mainly because I'm just not interested in it. So the honest answer is no, I don't read that. <laughs> Would you say that because you're one of those guys like me that doesn't like to sit still? I don't like to sit still. In fact, when I sit still, I fall asleep. So I, <laughs> I just want to sit down when I'm ready to just fall asleep and go to bed. <laughs> All right, Lee. So you said you've been doing real estate since 2004. How did you get introduced to real estate investing, though? 
Well, actually, my first accidental flip was in 2003. I bought a condo in Ireland, got some crazy neighbors, got broken into. I said, forget this. So I sold the condo, put it back in the market. Three months later, made about 35 grand. And I said, okay, I just made more money in three months than I did in my job. So what's up with this? And then I found a mentor in 2004 when I was in California. Just asked a lot of people. Actually, was a guy I was going to church with at the time. Small-time rehabber. So I got a couple tips from him, and he basically said, buy a property for about 130, 140 grand in this kind of neighborhood. You'll sell them for about 180, 190,000. And it took me about three months, four months to find that first house. It was a probate deal. Uh, Barda took it down with uh, hard money and rehabbed it while I was living in it, which was a crazy idea because at the time, one of my neighbors was a gangbanger, and I thought he was going to kill me. But anyway, well, survived, survived the whole ordeal. Made, I think it was about thirty, thirty-five thousand dollars in that deal, and uh, that was my first intentional flip. Did another one in California, but moved back to Florida. Had a friend try to fix it up for me. It was, that was a terrible idea, you know. Never hire your friends to fix up your houses. And uh, anyway, somehow skated out of that one with a ten, twelve thousand dollar profit, I think maybe fourteen grand, something like that. And moved back to Florida then, two thousand five. So the same exercise. Just started asking a lot of people, where do I make money in real estate? How do I make money in real estate? Where's the opportunity? And one of my friend's fathers at the time was buying at the courthouse. So he said, go down to the courthouse. So I did. Kind of watched the auction there for about two or three weeks. Realized there's a room full of used car salesmen and everybody seemed to know everybody and there's winking and nodding and it's like some high level poker game going on. So finally realized I'm swimming with the sharks, but obviously if these people are down here every day, they're not down here for the good of their health. They're making money. So finally jumped in, bought my first property, and I made money on that one. Just kind of stumbled through the deal. Didn't quite know what I bought or how it worked, but uh, I'm a real learn by doing. Now, I will tell you this. My learning curve took several years because I did that learn by doing. So that goes back to our earlier point about reading. I think if I had taking the time to read a few things, I may have avoided some of the pitfalls I did in my business. So 2005, the market was you know, just a rocket ship pace if anybody was in real estate back then. And even into 2006, it was still falsely moving forward, even though I sensed that the market was starting to crumble at the end of 05. So all the chickens came home to roost in 2007. By that point, I was in the middle of about 50 deals. I ended up losing my shirt in 2007. So I watched myself make and lose a couple million dollars in two years. And so it was back to zero again at the end of 07. And that was, that was a tough pill to swallow. So 2008, looked around for the opportunity and said, okay, real estate's my passion, but you know, obviously doing what I, what I did is a complete failure, failure. So where can I make money? Realized there was a bunch of wholesalers in the market. So I really studied what they were doing. And they were just, in a lot of cases, they were inserting themselves in the middle of a deal and they were just good at finding sellers and finding buyers. And they didn't even control the inventory. It was crazy. So I said, well, you know what? That's not for me because I tried a couple of deals like that. And then the seller said, oh, I already sold it. Or they try to go around you and sell it to your buyer. And I said, you know what? I need to control the inventory. So started to buy REOs off the MLS. Did real well with that. And was finding buyers in sometimes minutes. Because literally, I just beat them to the punch. They're like, I know the house I want it. They'd pay me five to 10 grand markup, and I was making money hand over fist. So in 08, my first year wholesaling, did about 100 deals, stepped up to a couple hundred deals in 2009, to almost double the figure again. 
I mean, it was crazy. There was 10, 11, 12, 13. I mean, in 2013, I think we flipped about 1,300 homes just on the buy side. I mean, it was wow. crazy. So uh, 14 and 15, stepped down a little bit, you know, six, seven, 800 deals. We'll probably do about uh, 600, uh, 700 deals on the buy side in 2017. But right now, my model is about 70% retail and about 30% wholesale. So I watched the opportunity shift from 100% wholesale in 2008 to now in 2017, about 70% retail and 30% wholesale. So, yeah, as I said at the introduction there, um, in your introduction, uh, we'll do about $120 million in turnover this year, which is crazy. So it's big volume, you know, big risk, big reward, but uh, so far so good. I've got a couple other businesses I'm dabbling in now, bought into a retail franchise, which we're well, actually, we're going to be the franchisor, so we're going to be the one growing that and then offering franchises in the next 12 to 24 months. Uh, we're starting with, you know, five locations for a proof of concept and um, involved in medical marijuana startups. So, yeah, things are things are super exciting at the moment. And there's another shift in the real estate market. I can see it coming. It hasn't happened quite yet, but I, I definitely feel in the next 12 to 24 months we're going to see some big, big, big changes. I would have to agree with you. Um so I want to touch on a couple of things here because I know you threw a lot of information at me and at the Alliance here. So obviously you're doing that kind of volume. You have to have some sort of massive team in place. Am I correct? Yeah, I've got about uh, about 20 people on my team and about four asset managers managing their rentals. And yeah, so there's a team of about almost 25 people. Wow. So how'd you go about getting that? I mean, obviously you said you started off wholesaling back in 2008 and nine when it was when it was uh pretty easy to do it because now it's gotten a little bit harder to do it because of the influx and in, uh, in the, in the, the market getting better. Um, when did you start bringing on that, those team members? Almost immediately in 08, when I was flipping a hundred deals, I had uh, two people. Uh, my wife was working with me and I had one assistant. So we had a team of three and we basically stumbled through 2008 with three people. Okay. But um, you know, that was doing, you know, about 10, about 10 deals a month. Okay. When would you recommend that someone starts looking at hiring people to bring onto the team? At what point? Like, what? How many deals per month do you think would be a good number for that? Actually, I wouldn't even do a deals per month because okay. I would say now in 2017 you can do stuff more efficiently than I was doing it nine years ago uh, with the way technology is and calendar reminders and Google Docs. I mean, Google Docs wasn't really around in 2008. I mean, it started to be around in 09 and 010, like 2010. That's when people really started using it. And in fact, a lot of people haven't started using until the last couple of years, but that's when we started using tools like that, you know, where you'd have docs that you could share and have people log in remotely and, you know, stuff like that. So I would say this, first of all, you know, a lot of people want to get the fancy office and the personal assistant, try maximizing your time first. So really, if you find yourself working 40, 50, 60 hours a week, at that point, you need to hire an assistant if you want to grow. But if you're sitting around twiddling your thumbs, you don't need an assistant. Agreed. So the, you've, you've been you've been through the, the really good parts of the market. You've been through the downside downturn in the market and lost your butt, and then you know you're back killing it again. Tell us a, a time in that recession that was like the roughest part, and then what did you do in your business to turn around and get out of that rut? Well, the roughest time was in the end of '07. I realized I was broke after making a couple million bucks, and so um, yeah, that was tough. I think I. Stayed in bed for about two weeks. It was pretty rough because I was like, oh man, like I just lost all my money. But what I did realize is that money didn't make me happy. And that was a good lesson I learned out of that. And I did learn that, you know, easy come, easy go. 
And I realized that, you know, there's things outside your control. And I also realized that in real estate specifically, you've got to engage different strategies at different points in the market. And so I see a lot of people teaching different strategies. Uh, there's, there's only one strategy that's universal, just one, and that's wholesaling. Every other strategy in real estate has a time and a place. There's a time and a place for owner financing. There's a time and a place for selling retail. There's a time and a place for you know doing uh, rentals. But as far as wholesaling, that is the only strategy that defies the, mar- the market. And especially if you're double closing deals, because if your buyer buys it, you make money. If they don't, you don't. But there's no risk. And so I would definitely say that that is the only strategy, in my opinion, after doing several thousand deals that defies whatever the market's doing. I absolutely love that because you're, you're right. You can wholesale in good markets and bad markets, you know, in, in any market because, you know, you're doing a service to people that are looking to still buy properties but may have a hard time finding them, whether it's well, in a good market or bad. Yeah. And let's kind of drill down to the thought. What wholesaling is, is you're day trading real estate. You're buying below today's market value and you're selling at today's market value. So if that value is low, you just got to buy lower than that low value. If it's high, you just got to buy less than that high value. So a true rehabber understands that they're day traders of real estate and their only job is to secure a below market value deal. That's it. Because once you've done that, if it's truly below market, you can feed it into the market at market price and sell it right away. Now, if you're engaging a strategy where you're trying to lock up something at today's market price and sell it above today's market price, that's not true wholesaling. That's You beat the market, but you, you, you can't build a, set, a successful wholesaling business on constantly trying to beat the market and sell something above uh, wholesale price. And believe me, a wholesale market um, has a price just like the retail market does. Both marketplaces have, have a price that assets trade at. And so you as a wholesaler, your only job is, is to tie up an asset below today's wholesale value. Couldn't have said it any better. I mean, that's that's really the nuts and bolts of what wholesaling breaks down to be. Felice, you've done over 6,000 deals. And this is going to be a tough question to answer, but I always love to uh, get everybody's feedback and answer on it. What's the craziest deal you've ever had to go through, whether you or your team? Well, we uh, actually, a few months ago, um, the end of 2016, we dealt with a lady. Her name was Cookie. I'll leave her last name out, but <laughs> should have should have known she was crazy with a name like Cookie. But mm-hmm. um, anyway, she had lived in her property. Um, how long do you think someone could live in their house without paying the mortgage or taxes or pretty much anything? Three to five. Well, I guess five to seven years, maybe. <laughs> yeah, Seventeen years, Cookie managed what? to live in her home uh, in Miami uh, and didn't pay Bank of America a red cent. So. We had the pleasure of uh, buying that asset from Bank of America. We got a good deal on it, so I, that's why I didn't really care. Uh, we bought it for about, we actually bought it for about 50 cents of wholesale. So it was a good deal. Wow. And so we paid it about 90 grand for the asset, um, had some legal problems and some, you know, fees there. I think we traded the asset at 170. So yeah, just, just below, just, just over 50 cents on that. True 50 cents on the wholesale dollar. That's not even the retail dollar. That's just the wholesale dollar. So. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we fought this lady for about a year um, because you got to you got to think if she's lived in the house for 17 years and we're trying to boot her out, like that's not going to go over real well. So anyway, we fought her, got her out. She threatened to burn the house down, burn her kids down. I mean, just all sorts of crazy oh, things. Man. Yeah, she just lady was nuts. Then after we got secured the house, kicked her out. Then she files multiple lawsuits against us. 
it gets even better. So I made a settlement with her attorney. She agreed to it. And then after she got the money, then she sued us again. What? Yeah, this lady was just ridiculous. So finally, um, we got the deal closed. We, we sold to Byron. And I have no doubt, Greg, that she's probably harassing the buyer that we sold the house to now at this uh, point. Sure. I mean, just absolutely bonkers. So, yeah, that that's probably, from a litigious standpoint, that's probably the most resistance I've ever got on the home. Well, that's, that's, that's crazy. That is crazy. That is pure crazy. Yep. Yeah, but we've seen it all. I mean, sure, yeah. <laughs> everything, everything minus, and I say this very specifically just to show you how close I got. Everything besides actually seeing a dead body in a house, I have, I have had happen in real estate. Yeah, that's that's definitely something I've con- uh, been concerned with walking in some of these houses. <laughs> one there right before me, and there's been one there right after me, but yeah. Not, yeah, it's it's crazy. The amount of when you do this many deals, you just see it all. Just absolutely crazy things. Bought the wrong house, kicked people out of the wrong house, then realized that we were titled the wrong. I mean, just when you buy stuff at the courthouse, it's the wild west. So, yeah, <laughs> we have the wrong house before. Really? Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. no. Oh yeah. <laughs> I gotta laugh at that. That's pretty funny. Oh yeah. No, the war stories at this point, uh, I could write a book just on my war stories. Maybe you should. <laughs> That'd be a book I think we'd all buy. Yeah. Yeah. My life and six thousand deals. <laughs> Here's my war stories. Yeah. Definitely. So, Lee, what's the one thing you know today that you wish you to know when you first started in this business? Oh. Well, I think though I, I touched on it first, which is the the fact that you have to engage different strategies. And so uh, let me consolidate that thought. So a mentor of mine really taught me this, this and, and, and really explained to me in a way that I, it was simple. So I'm going to try to explain this to you and your folks so it's simple enough to understand. The first thing you got to do is look at the market and really understand it. That's the very first thing. A lot of people don't look at the market. They're just so focused on what they're doing to keep their head down. Then they look up and the market's changed. Like, well, what just happened? It's because they're not looking at the market. So I take it at least once a month because uh, real estate typically moves in quarters and there's trends going on. It doesn't crash in one day like the stock. You know, like, you know, you have Apple one day is great and then some bad news comes out and can drop 20%. The, the real estate market is not like that. It moves in trends. So that's the first thing you got to understand. So once a month is a good time to do this. You look at the market, you understand this, what it's doing. The next thing you got to do is figure out where's the opportunity. And then after you look at where the opportunity is, you got to figure out how you're going to tailor your strategy around that. Now, after you get to that stage, if you figure out how to tailor your strategy and it's different than what you're doing now, you've obviously got to change what you're doing now. If you come to the conclusion that the strategy you should be engaging is the one you're currently doing, that's great. But what you're going to find is every few months, possibly a year, you're going to have to change direction. You have to turn the ship, head your business in a different direction because you realize, okay, the opportunities change. Where I need to capitalize on it, where the money is, is different. I mean, real estate is just a big sea of money. But again, the wind's blowing different directions and the tide's going different directions. But what you don't want to be doing is find yourself swimming against the tide. Because the market's way bigger than you and I or any player or any group of players. It, the market's going to ultimately dominate. So you've got to make sure that your strategy is one that's rowing with the tide. And that's how you make money. But fighting the tide in real estate is, is, is just silly. You know, that'll be, I'll give you a clear example. The market's crashed, stuff's selling for bottom dollar, and you, you want to go into a fix and flip business. That doesn't quite make sense. You can't get appraisals. Banks aren't offering financing. 
but you're hell bent on doing a fix and flip strategy and selling to finance buyers. We can we can look at this and say, yeah, that's silly. But a lot of people, I saw the market crumble around me, Greg, and I could see people getting into new construction. Now we're talking about a market that's disintegrated in 08. And people are building new houses, spec houses, and expecting to sell them. Just absolutely silly. <laughs> now what happened was six months, a year, two years later, I saw these buildings three quarters of the way finished, half finished, or finished and empty and vandalized because it was the wrong strategy. They were so busy getting their plans approved that they didn't pop their head up to look at the market and go, oh, man, the market just disintegrated around me. And I can get out and lose 10 grand here a house instead of losing 100 grand a house. You'd be surprised how many people engage the completely wrong strategy compared to what the market's doing and where the opportunity is. And I think that's why, again, we've already touched on it, why wholesaling is so um, so important to have as, as a tool in the tool belt because when the market does shift, you have that backup plan that you can always wholesale houses. And here's the thing. The reason wholesaling is so important is because that's the true liquidation value of an asset. You know, when you add value, the sky's the limit. You know, you can, you're going to sell for more. But the, the most conservative way to approach, if, you, if, you're, if your uh, pipeline is full of deals that you can liquidate them all at wholesale value and make money, then you've got options. You can wholesale them. You can retail them. Now you're into maxim maximizing profit instead of just making a profit. That's the great part about buying below wholesale. You, you can secure assets below wholesale value. You've got multiple options. You can typically keep them as rentals. You can wholesale them. You can retail them. You can wholesale them, which is what we call where you basically just clean them up a little bit, maybe take care of some of the scary stuff, and then throw them back out as a, a wholesale deal that's cleaned up a little bit. But yeah, you've got multiple strategies if you buy right. Absolutely. So what do you think some of the most common mistakes are that – actually, what's – reset it. What do you think is the most common mistake that newbies make when they get started in this business? So what, what can you tell them to help them shortcut that biggest early on mistake? There's a few of them. I think that it really comes down to valuation, Greg. I, I think that that's where I see the biggest mistake. It, you know, you, you can ruin your reputation when you put that something's going to – it's worth 300 grand. When you and I might be – well, you've been in the game for a while. I've been in it a little bit longer. And mm -hmm. we say, no, it's only worth 200. So – People just don't know how to value properties. They don't understand how to value acreage versus non-acreage, a newer construction house versus an older construction house. They don't factor in repairs. I mean, if you've got a house that's built in 1950 and a house that's built in 2017, you can clean up the 1950 house. Again, we're talking about not a historic neighborhood where the, the old factor doesn't add value. At the end of the day, you can put a ton of money into the 1950. It's still a 1950-looking house that's just been fixed up. The 2017 house is going to look superior and it's always going to sell for a premium compared to an older home like that. Plus, you know, the repairs, people just, you can run away with repairs on these old homes. We're really, really trying to stick away from these full rehabs that require like six different permits because you can spend your six or nine months rehabbing these things. So, yeah, there's, I think valuation, both valuation of what the house is truly worth and what the repairs truly are, are two places that I see newbies just go way off, way off. They tell me it needs 30, and I look at it, and it's a teardown. I mean, I had a rehabber send me a home. Uh, you may be familiar with this one. It's in Lutz, and the house is literally sinking. I mean, <laughs> my guy was afraid to stand in the middle of the house wow. because the middle of the house was being swallowed up in a hole, literally. I didn't see that one. <laughs> and, uh, now... You know, me as a business owner with $100 million in volume, 
I'm thinking there's no way in his lifetime I would send the general public into his house because of liability issues. But again, they're just blasting the thing all over the internet and saying, yeah, go look at it. And doors open. Yeah, doors open and the floors open too. I mean, it's crazy. So or this is, you know, I see, I see a lot of movies and then also just making blanket offers on, you know, to everybody in town. You can ruin your reputation. You get one of these auto offer softwares and you send 3,000 offers in at 50% of list price. You're just going to look like an idiot. Because anyone who's got more than one listing who's going to be a player in the town is just going to throw all your offers in the trash or make paper planes out of them or just delete your emails or block your emails. So that's not a good strategy either. I would definitely recommend if people took a little bit more time, once they decide on a strategy that makes sense for the market, to really research the local market, who's playing in it, what the values are. And even if you took a week or two doing that before you just jumped in and forwarded everybody's email, you'd probably make a lot more money. You know, you don't make any money forwarding junk emails. You make money sending out an email to a list of real buyers for a property that's below market value. That's how you make money. Absolutely. So the, we, you said at the very beginning of the show here that you see a fluctuation in the market. Where do you think we're going to start seeing that market dip a little bit like it started to in 2005, 2006? Okay, well, let, let's be clear. The market was decimated 10 years ago. So that was... That was a, an anomaly, even for real estate. It just was a complete financial meltdown. But at some point, you know, real estate goes up and then it comes back down, then it goes back up again, and it goes back down. This isn't like some like new phenomena. This is this happens, and a lot of it's to do with the short-term death cycle, which typically is a five to eight-year death cycle, where mm-hmm. at, at lenders issue a bunch of credit. Eventually, the chickens come home to roost. So instead of people spending more than they make, they have to spend less than they make to be able to pay their loans back. And so you've got typically when that end of the cycle comes, people default. That causes a recession. In real estate, you'll see prices dip because lenders are taking back inventory. Now there's excess supply in the market, and that causes the prices to go down, assuming demand doesn't climb up, which typically it's not going to change overnight. But so a a huge change in supply and no change in demand right away would cause prices to dip. Same reason right now as prices are rising, you're going to see buyers pull out of the market because it doesn't make sense for an institutional buyer because they can't make their yield on a rental. You know, the large landlords can say, okay, this is getting a little bit tight for me. The guy with cash is saying, you know what? This is pretty expensive. I can use my cash and spend it somewhere else. So those buyers start to pull out of the market. Then you're just left with homeowners who are oblivious that they're, they're paying top dollar or just don't care because their financing is so cheap. And by just reducing your buyer pool, that alone would cause prices to come down because your demand is going down. Your supply stays the same. Economics 101, that's going to cause the price of the dip. So I definitely see a 10 to 20% reset in the market over the next 12 to 24 months. I'm not sure exactly when that's going to be. I think there's a lot of hype around the new presidency and, you know, a lot of people are bullish in the market. But eventually, you know, rates are going to have to come back up. Rates come back in, come up to, to tailor back the market. And that, that'll, that, that couple with buyers pulling out because they can't make a yield at the base level. You know, when you're valuing properties, they, they, they go back to, well, what can they rent for and can you cash flow? So when properties get to a price that there's no way at any interest rate you can cash flow on the property, uh, they need to be curtailed to make, to make sure that they make economic sense for a landlord. Perfectly stated. <laughs> Thank you for coming on the show. And then if you could have one last nugget for, for them, we'll kind of do that. So. Yeah, I would just say, you know, a lot of people are, you know, right now are getting super excited and getting to rehabbing. Uh, one of the biggest mistakes that people see people make is overvaluing big properties. So 
if you're in a subdivision of 1,500 square foot homes and you pick up a 3,000 square foot home, it's not going to sell for twice the price. At the end of the day, every area, every subdivision typically caps out at a certain point. And so uh, I always recommend the best rehab anyone can buy is a small house in a high-value subdivision because you'll spend less rehab dollars on it, and the subdivision will carry your value up, and then you'll, you'll be able to sell it for top, for top dollars. So it really kind of goes back to real estate at one. Find the ugliest house on a nice street and, and find one that's smaller than your than your comps because that way then the, the base level of entry for a certain division, just like a, a subdivision caps at a certain rate, it also starts at a certain rate. And so you can have an 800 square foot house that sells for 300 grand and 2,000 square foot house that sells for 350. I just picked up a deal in Sarasota last week. And Greg, I, I couldn't believe the comps. The base level of entry for this subdivision was about 300 grand. And it was an 800 square foot home. And there was houses twice the size selling for 20 and 50 grand more. Crazy. Wow. But you know, wow. I don't dictate the rules. I've got to take what the market gives you, just like we talked about earlier. And I tailor my strategy around that. And here's the thing. You, you, you get one of those 800 square foot homes. You're going to spend a lot less dollars than rehabbing a 2000 square foot home, make a tidy profit and a lot less hassle on a small home too. So I try to stay away from big monster homes because they suck all of your money. They take a lot longer to rehab and you typically don't sell them what you think you're going to sell them. Well, that's a good gold nugget to, to leave us off on. Uh, Lee, thanks again, man, for coming on the show. You've been a huge asset to, to me, the Alliance, and everybody listening. So I really appreciate it, man. No problem, man. Take care. All right. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. You've just listened to another Flipping Real Estate Like the Pros podcast. You're another step closer to fulfilling your dreams as a successful real estate entrepreneur. We'd like to thank you for putting your trust in us to be your guide into this exciting venture called real estate investing. For more information, visit our website at www.flippingrealestatelikethepros.com. Catch you on the flip side, Alliance.